This episode of I Save That Podcast is made possible by Ethicon Biopatch. Biopatch, the number one selling CHG dressing on the market, is the only antimicrobial dressing with multiple randomized controlled trials and a clear indication to reduce catheter-related bloodstream infections in patients with central venous and arterial catheters. For more information, visit ethicon.com. Biopatch, reach more patients, restore more lives. From the Association for Vascular Access, this is the I Save That Podcast. Come with me now. Come with me now. And you have discovered episode eight of season one, the I Save That Podcast. This is Ramsey Nazarala with Ava. I am in Salt Lake City, Utah, with Director of Clinical Education, Judy Thompson. And Eric Sager is joining us from Columbus, Ohio. How are we all doing today? It's great, Ramsey. It's good to be here in Salt Lake City with you. It's even a pretty gorgeous warm day. How about you, Eric? It's pretty here, too. Uh, it's not really the warmest, but it's pushing 50 and the sun's out. So I'm happy. I have no no complaints. Winner, winner. We have, we have mountains here, but it's mitigated by Judy and I doing budget planning for 2019 and preparing Ava for it's next uh, year and trying to, to eclipse everything that we were able to accomplish this year, like the scientific meeting, which we discussed in the, the last episode, which is our nice bridge to, to this episode. We, we talked about the multidisciplinary membership of the Association for Vascular Access, and we spoke specifically with, with Christy Chapman about infection prevention and uh, produced the idea for this episode uh, to talk a little bit more about how infection prevention and uh, vascular access are, are, are combined, are really joined at the hip. Uh, because the foundation of everything that vascular access is about is preventing that, that infection. First, you, you do no harm. Um, si- sidebar, when I came to AVA last year, uh, one of the special interest groups I wanted to build was one specifically for infection prevention. I thought that infection preventionists should have their own uh, home within, within AVA. And, and that eventually went away because I came to realize, and from people like Judy, that infection prevention needs to be the foundation of every special interest group we have. It shouldn't be its own house. It should be everyone's house. So um, I came to, uh, to Ava from uh, Johnson & Johnson. I had infection prevention and vascular access obligations. They are combined. Um, and they, that's actually uh, the sponsor of this episode uh, is from that business, from, from Ethicon, who we'll be talking about. And as I spent time with Ava and as I spent all those years with J&J, I, I started to realize and, and now embrace that they're really in one department. I mean, infection prevention has tentacles into so many other areas of of the building of the hospital of, of patient care, but with vascular access, we're decidedly uh, in, the, in the same uh, foxhole with them. Yeah, there's few departments within the hospital systems or medicine that have 100% of the patients. And now the data shows that vascular access affects 90% of patients. I, though I have not done the study, I've yet to see more than one or two patients that are not newborns or psych patients that don't have an IV. So between vascular access and infection prevention, we, we have everybody. It's the whole house. We do. So right. we, we can't be separate entities. I think some of the best improvements that I've made in my clinical career was in collaboration with infection prevention. I've had some amazing infection preventionists to work with and, and vascular access specialists, but the collaboration is, is paramount. and 
I'm excited about this podcast and what we're going to do and talk about the infection prevention opportunities for us to even, I think, collaborate more. Yes, we've had some great meetings with APIC and uh, as Judy and I are busily planning 2019 and preparing for a much longer term strategic plan exercise, uh, infection prevention is like our special interest groups, the foundation of, of everything that we're trying to advance with, with AVA, especially since our tagline begins with protect the patient. <laughs> that's, that's where infection prevention lives. That is absolutely true. In fact, APIC was kind enough to invite myself and a couple other folks from AVA um, that have yes um, to do one of their webinars, which is going to air on two days from now. Yes, Thursday. That's Thursday, October the twenty fifth, right? Yes, Thursday. <laughs> the twenty fifth. Yep. yep. For, for everyone snapping this podcast up right off the the fresh podcast heap, that's that's two days from when we're recording. So you probably got about thirty six hours to get to, go to avainfo.org. Um, should be that. Yeah. And you should see uh, on the APIC web website is really where APIC.org, yes. And you'll have AVA and APIC working together in tandem to promote uh, infection prevention. We're going to be talking about PIVs and bloodstream infections. Which Sounds like it's going to be a really great webinar. We're really excited right. about it. Pretty excited. So I'm excited to talk about the speaker that we have on this podcast as well. Yeah. Well, when we return, uh, we'll be chatting with Dr. Lisa Ovington from Ethicon as Ramsey mentioned the sponsor of this episode about reducing Dr. O. Dr. O, yes. Uh, it's a fantastic conversation about reducing catheter-related infections. And then a little bit later after that, uh, we'll also have a Beyond the Manuscript segment as I have an interview with an author of an article set to publish in the next issue of JABA. So please, everyone, stay tuned. And Ramsey and Judy, keep it cool out in Salt Lake City. We will. We'll try. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, everybody. Disc with CHG is the number one selling CHG dressing on the market with a 1A CDC recommendation. Its design makes it easy to apply and remove and provides 360 degree coverage around a catheter insertion site. Biopatch is designed to continuously release CHG over seven days to maintain skin antiseptics while absorbing up to eight times its own weight in fluid. The Biopatch team also offers a point prevalence line surveillance program conducted by a team of registered nurses. Your clinical staff will receive key takeaways and recommendations around the Biopatch bundle without compromising HIPAA guidelines. The clinical team will provide and execute an educational plan tailored to address potential risk factors of BSI. Learn more about Biopatch at ethicon.com. Biopatch, reach more patients, restore more lives. Welcome back. And now we have the distinct honor of being joined by Dr. Lisa Ovington, medical director at Ethicon, who plays a part in all the products that help infection prevention and reducing infection or have an impact on wound healing, uh, responsible for the entire BioPatch family. Uh, Dr. Ovington, thank you so much for joining us. I have Judy Thompson, AVA's Director of Clinical Education on the line with us, as well as AVA's CEO, Ramsey Nazrala. Hi, Dr. O. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Well, it's a pleasure to talk to you today. I'm excited. Um, at our conference, our, our scientific meeting this year, a big push. Um, many of the topics were about PIVs and routine replacement, 
an infection related to. So very excited to talk to you about this topic and get your opinions on and some of the data on what's going on out there. So if Great. it's okay with you, let's let's pop right into it. Sure thing. So there's lots of opinions out there related to moving to clinical, clinically indicated for dwell times for PIVs. Um, what are your views on on the practice implications to that? Well, I think that the the whole um, debate around routine replacement of PIV and and moving to clinically indicated replacement has been um, kind of being carried out in in the real world and in the research world for for quite some time now. And I think the um, the benefits are are multiple, and I think they're you know appropriate and, and things that we want to move to, like reducing unnecessary needle sticks for the patients, improving the patient satisfaction, which then has effects as well on you know staff time um, and even supply costs potentially. So I think you know there's definitely a lot of benefits to moving to clinically indicated replacement, and and many of the studies that have been done, randomized controlled trials as well as longitudinal studies that have tried to look at the impact of that change have said, you know, we really don't see any impact on some of those uh, complications of PIV, notably uh, phlebitis um, and infiltration and, and also infection. But, but I have to say that the majority of those studies, the primary outcome they were looking at um, was the phlebitis outcome. And they didn't always differentiate between the types of phlebitis, whether it was chemical, mechanical, or, or bacterial, and oftentimes that would have been hard to do without additional analysis. But but that was the primary outcome, and, and everyone seems to be fairly comfortable with the fact that if we move from routine replacement, which has typically been 72 to 96 hours, to clinically indicated, we're not going to see a big difference. And when the studies kind of analyzed how much longer clinically indicated, um, you know, the dwell time was. It, it wasn't that much longer. I think there have been a number of studies that says the overall average dwell time for PIVs is, you know, maybe um, just over five days. So we're going from, you know, three to four days to five days. And and I, while I say that those, those improvements are, are things that we should, you know, aim for, one potential concern is that the, the outcome of the PIV-related bloodstream infection or bacteremia the, the data there is not as strong. I think what that tells us, that doesn't say, well, we shouldn't go for it. We shouldn't, you know, continue our efforts to go to clinically, clinically indicated. But it perhaps implies that we ought to be taking the same care to protect those PIV lines as we do with other lines, like central lines. And to that end, we can use technology to become more comfortable and provide more safety around, you know, going to that increased dwell time, especially around the um, outcome of of bacteremia. Now, you, you mentioned the bloodstream infection. Um, with PIV-related bloodstream infection, it there's a lot of talk about it right now, but I don't see a ton of data on it. I, I think that um, part of the reason is, you know, it's not mandated necessarily that we track or surveil the PIV, um, and, and maybe that will change, but, but there have been a few, um, there's been a lot of, you know, opinion and there have been a number of you know studies that have tried to look at or get their hands around uh, our arms around what is this rate of, of PIV infection. And I think some of the earliest data and the reliable data we can look at was a, a 2006 systematic review by Mackey, where he did a paper. He looked at I think over 2,000 studies and tried to look at different line types and what the um, bloodstream infection risk 
associated with different line types was. And I think with PIV, it was it was relatively low compared, obviously, to, to central lines. But what we need to take into account in looking at kind of a low infection rate is is the the prevalence of that type of line. And when we think about the fact that, you know, probably three quarters of all hospitalized patients end up having a PIV, so much many more patients, you know, are exposed to this type of line than are exposed to central lines. And so even a low risk of infection could ultimately end up affecting as many patients as a line with a higher risk but lower um, prevalence in, in the in the um, patient population. But when people have looked at PIV infections, they, they do find that, you know, they're out there. It's kind of kind of the scenario um, I'm often reminded of the saying that, you know, you, you can't only look where the light is good. You've got to look at the other places, too. And so when people have focused on PIV, you know, they found that, you know, we do see infections, and maybe they're kind of a silent or cause of some of these infections. Some of the, the better studies have looked at, you know, cases where, you know, there wasn't a central line, and did that patient have an infection? Um, I think Mermel published last year, about you know increasing the awareness of the role that that PIVs can play in, in infections, he estimated that about a third of Staph aureus infections may be coming from PIVs. You know he he found an incidence of about you know 0.2 percent um, for short-term PIVs, but but that accounted for about 23 percent of the nosocomial um, catheter-related bloodstream infections. Right. So not central line, but related to mm-hmm. a catheter. And he did find that you know as you increase the dwell time, you increase the risk of the, the bloodstream infection. And this is no different. You know, when we think about the pathogenesis of bloodstream infection, we know that the, the origin of, of the most of the bacteria are from the skin of the patient. And I think that's well accepted. And we know probably the most about the pathogenesis of central line um, infections, where you get colonization of the catheter tract and then biofilm, biofilm formation on the um, catheter, on the extraluminal surface. Um, and when you think about that pathogenesis, that's really device agnostic. You know, from the standpoint of the bacteria, you know, that are arising from, you know, the layers of the skin or down in the hair follicles, you know, in that insertion tract, those bacteria don't know where the tip of the line is. They don't know what it's made of. They just know that there's um, a surface that they can colonize. So when we think about, you know, the likelihood of infectious risk with different types of catheters, I think we have to remember that you know bacteria are device agnostic. They're just thinking of it in terms of a surface. So other studies that have looked at you know the, the rates of PIV infection, you know, our, our company funded some research a year or so ago looking in the premier perspective database, you know, where we looked at patients with um, peripheral IV lines and we tried to exclude patients who may have had a central line. Um, and, and then looked at PIV-related complications, and we found that, you know, they, they were out there, but you don't necessarily see it unless you're looking for it. And I think other investigators have, have found the same thing, that, um, you know, these, these PIV rates are, are real things out there, and they're affecting, you know, a lot of patients. In my own home state of Pennsylvania, um, Davis in 2014 looked at um, Pennsylvania data from 2012 from NHSN, looking specifically for, for events associated with PIV use, and he found that primary bloodstream infection was, was pretty high, and it accounted for, um, you know, a lot of these bloodstream infections 
and and they these were in patients that didn't have a central line, but they had a peripheral line, and we were seeing specifically Staph aureus related um, BSI. So so I think you know this idea of PIV RBSI, and that's a long acronym, PIV related bloodstream <laughs> infection. It's a real thing. Oh, I agree. I agree. In fact, I've had a a prior patient that had a Staph aureus infection that started at the PIV. I had placed a pick in this patient, and the patient actually got infectious thrombophlebitis, and it was a Staph aureus bug. Ended up to have the IND. So to your point, yeah. we aren't going to find what we don't look for. It used to people used to just report their infections in the ICU, and we didn't think we had a big problem on the floors. And lo and behold, we have a bigger problem on the floors. So it, we had got to start looking better. Now you you've talked about strategies, technologies to help reduce this risk of infection. Is there any biopatch clinical data on PIVs themselves? So in terms of data that really focused on looking at biopatch, I'm not aware of any studies that, that specifically did a randomized controlled trial of biopatch versus no biopatch in PIV. Although, you know, we, we can't exclude that that might be something that um, folks do in the future. There, there is one study that I am aware of where biopatch was used as part of a bundle, and this was by Michelle DeVries, um, and she was at Methodist Hospital in Gary, Indiana. And when they were adopting the change going from routine replacement of their PIVs to clinically indicated replacement, and Michelle is kind of a thought leader here and has published um, on, on the topic, you know, even before this particular study. And they decided that to enable this change in practice, that they wanted to go at it with a bundle of uh, interventions to help protect those lines going to the longer dwell time. Now, biopatch was part of their bundle. And in reality, whenever we, biopatch is used in clinical practice, it's always part of a bundle. Any type of infection prevention, whether it's looking at trying to reduce the risk of uh, CRBSIs or surgical site infections or urinary tract infections, we're always using a bundle of interventions. We're not just doing one thing. So in, in Michelle DeVries' study, they, they went out with number one, and I, and I think being an educator at heart, you know, one of the number one parts of their bundle was staff education. And then they did use BioPatch specifically to, you know, achieve that continuous antisepsis of the skin around the insertion site and protecting against the extraluminal root of um, colonization of the catheter. They went with a, um, and I'm not sure of the brand, um, a securement dressing because we know, you know, keeping the the uh, catheter in place and preventing pistoning is important. So they uh, opted for a particular securement, address, securement dressing. They used alcohol impregnated caps to address the intraluminal root of infection and they used an integrated closed IV catheter system and, and sterile gloves because one of the things that some of the previous studies had found, not Michelle's work, but uh, some previous studies looking at PIV infection rates and the types of pathogen, they found, and not surprisingly, that Staph aureus was the most common pathogen. But in one study, <laughs> they also found a lot of E. coli as oh. a pathogen. And so that tended to imply that maybe hand washing and, you know, um, skin prep and thing was, wasn't, you know, as stringent maybe in PIV as, as other types of lines. So they went with sterile gloves. And with this bundle, um, they found at their hospital, after a year of tracking their data, that they achieved a 19% reduction in their PIV BSI rates and even a 34% reduction or 30, 34 to 37% reduction 
in their laboratory confirmed BSI overall, so including central line. So I think that just kind of speaks to focus on a problem, and, and I think importantly that part of the bundle of staff education and, and raising awareness. I think people just kind of step up their game overall, but they did see, like I said, a 19% reduction in the PIV BSI rates, but, but even a, a reduction overall in all their line rates. That's impressive. And I've seen the practice out in the country, and it varies. There's some people that are just absolutely spot-on perfect placing PIVs, but I think those are the exception, not the rule, unfortunately. And I, I hope in the days coming we will see sterile bundles for PIV. And I know that's something that many people are looking at, but I hope it continues. If they were putting in my IV, I'm going to ask for a sterile insertion. So. Absolutely. I mean, I think I think the key is awareness, and and the publications and podcasts like this one, and and the debate. I think is all a good thing because it does raise the awareness. I always kind of put put it to what I call the mom test. Like if my mom was receiving this intervention, you know, what would I want my mom to get if she was in the hospital? Right. If she had a central line, or if she had a surgery, or if she had a PIV. You know, I, I think about it in those terms, and I think we all would want our mom to have a PIV bundle. You know, to try to address, address all those potential routes of infection. So, so that you know, when there's debate, I think it raises awareness, and where there's awareness, it increases attention. Speaking that, for study. myself, I think that my mom, I would like her to have the best care possible. So, I think you're correct, Doctor O, on that. I, I want your mom Absolutely. to have the best care possible too. The, <laughs> thank the, you. Uh, that study, uh, you too. sure. That that uh, study from from Shelley is profound to me, and we've talked about this on prior episodes of the podcast. Shelly is a friend of the podcast. She actually was, was on a couple episodes ago. By by having this focused intervention specific to peripheral IV cannulas, they've reduced their central line infection rate, which tells you when you're getting your house broken into, it's not always through the front door. It's right. sometimes it's coming in right. through the window. You know, it makes me laugh at times when people say it's just a PIV. Well, it's in the circulatory system. What does that mean? It goes in... Uh, just like you said, it doesn't matter what device it comes in on. The bugs like to travel. So. It, right. Yeah, um, and at, at the end of the day, it's, it's a portal of entry. You know, and I, I also take care of, uh, we have antimicrobial sutures, um, you know, which are aimed at, you know, trying to address surgical site infection risk. But, you know, w when I think about that, it's like, you know, our skin and I was trained by dermatologists, you know, long ago, and the skin is an amazing organ. And it's our, our barrier between us and the outside world, our barrier between us and, and, and bacteria. And while bacteria can live very happily on our skin when it's intact, when we have, you know, normal flora or commensal flora, whatever you want to call it, when we have a break in that skin integrity, that's a portal of entry. That's a place for them to get in. And, you know, whether that that break was caused by a central line or a peripheral line, a break is a break. And like you said, it's all going into the circulation. That's where I think, you know, traditionally we have focused, started our focus on where the risk was highest, you know, in the ICU and in the central lines. But again, when we go back and think scientifically about the pathogenesis of infections in general and, and vascular related infections specifically, Again, I keep bringing up the fact that bacteria are device agnostic. You know, they've just found a portal of entry, and they're, they're not really thinking in, in any way about what type of device caused that portal. They've just got a way in now. True. Now, it, when you spoke a little bit ago about um, there, you didn't know of any specific studies that address biopatch and PIVs. What size of trial would it take to prove the efficacy? 
of biopatch and PIVs? So I think, you know, when we think in general about um, any type of study to look at infections, you know, thankfully, healthcare-associated infections are relatively low frequency. They typically have high morbidity, but when we're talking about frequencies, you know, in, in the 1% to 2% range or even lower, what that means is in order to have, to power your study, to have enough patients enrolled that you're going to see the, the, the outcome, um, it, it's hundreds, maybe even thousands of patients. And then to see a difference between, you know, your control and your intervention you know, you you need even more patients. So we're, we're probably talking, you know, fifteen hundred, two thousand, maybe even more patients to to be able to experience the the complication that we're trying to reduce at a high enough rate that then we could even detect a difference. So it would be a large study. <laughs> it sounds like it. It sounds like it. Now, um, one more question for you before we let you go, and we thank you so much for all your your valuable time you're spending with us. But um, what about PIV, the data for PIVs and other antimicrobial dressings designed to reduce the BSI risk? Sure. And and I think, um, I, I'm sure our listeners are aware of other antimicrobial dressings, you know, on the market for um, mm-hmm. catheter sites. Um, and I think one of the things we need to think about is, you know, an antimicrobial is not an antimicrobial, it's not an antimicrobial. Whenever, you know, I'm a chemist by training, I'm an organic chemist by training. So when I think about, you know, antimicrobials as chemicals, we have to consider not just what it is, but where it's being designed to have an effect. And so when we talk about catheter dressings, we're thinking about antimicrobials that work well on the skin. Um, versus, you know, in deeper tissue or on a non-living surface, you know, we can think of lots of antimicrobials. So in the world of antimicrobial dressings, we know we've got um, chlorhexidine as the antimicrobial, we've got polyhexamethyl biguanide as an antimicrobial, we've got silver antimicrobials, you know, you you could kind of drop other uh, chemicals in the mix. And so when I try to monitor the data, no other data specifically in the realm of PIV-related infections. Now, that could be due to the fact that, you know, as we've just discussed, as a community, we're we're maybe just early in the evolution of looking at, you know, and monitoring, surveilling PIV-related infections. But we haven't seen data from other antimicrobial dressings. And I think we also have to be careful in, in terms of taking data and with, with its implications for practice, when I think about particularly medical devices like like antimicrobial dressings, you know, I don't necessarily think we can use the data from one product to justify the use of another product because medical devices, unlike drugs, you know, when we think about in, in the pharmaceutical industry, there's something that I think we're aware of called the class effect, right? We think of classes of classes of antibiotics, you know, classes of um, uh, right. oncology drugs. You know, drugs that that may be different chemically, but they act similarly in the body. And you know, that's more accepted in the in the drug world. Although I don't know that it's even 100% true there. But it's this class effect. I don't think applies to medical devices because they're much more complicated. When we think about, say, taking a, a drug, taking a, a tablet. You know, the interaction between the healthcare provider and the drug and the patient and the drug is minimal. You know, you write your prescription, the doctor writes the prescription, the patient gets it filled, and then they swallow the drug, and that that's it. When we think about medical devices, you know, there's an interaction that takes place between the healthcare provider who's 
usually applying, when we think about these antimicrobial dressings, a healthcare provider is applying the dressing to the patient, and then the patient is wearing this dressing over time, and then then there's the complexity of the dressing itself. You know, it's it has the dressing components, it has the antimicrobial, and what is that specific antimicrobial, and how is it being um, released from the dressing and contacting the skin in order to do its job of, you know, antisepsis of the skin. So I think that the class effect doesn't exist for medical devices. And so I think um, even though a lot of our clinical practice guidelines try to be brand agnostic when they make recommendations, um, when we look at evidence-based recommendations for um, infection prevention, you know, even if all the studies have been on one particular device, um, in the in the interest of of not playing favorites, the evidence-based committees try to genericize the um, description of that device. But I think as as practitioners or as scientists, we need to remember that, well, you know, one antimicrobial dressing is ne isn't necessarily the same as another antimicrobial dressing, even when they have the same ingredient um, or different ingredients because of those interactions that I mentioned between the healthcare provider applying the product and the patient also interacting with the product during its wear time, that there can be differences that have an have a effect on safety and performance of the device. Well, I fibbed a little bit when I said it was my last question because listening to you, I have another question for you. So if sure. I were a clinician evaluating products and I have product X, Y, and Z, based on what you know, what am I going to go look at to go evaluate whether I want to go use a bio patch or a widget or a wadget, so to speak? Well, so I think um, I think you have to look at the information that the manufacturer can provide, and I, and I think um, one thing that all manufacturers can provide and and should, and I think can provide about their product is what I call proof of concept. In other words, if it's an antimicrobial dressing, show me the proof of concept that you've got an antimicrobial in it. Tell me about the antimicrobial. Does it work in a controlled setting like a laboratory? You know, petri dish data. Um, you know, does it work in, if, if applicable, you know, animal studies? Does it t give me some interaction studies? Tell me how the, the people who are using it like it, you know, handling studies. Um, so healthy volunteer studies, that sort of thing. Um, so everybody can give you that data and kind of educate yourself about how this product might or might not work in your hands and in your patient population. But ideally, and I think the most important to, to any clinician or scientist is, well, what's the in-use data? In other words, where's your clinical data? Where are your clinical studies? Were there clinical studies in the types of patients that, that I treat? Um, you know, if you're working in the uh, with, with elderly patients with very thin skin, uh, or if you're working in the NICU, or if you're working e even in different climates sometimes, um, you know, you, you want to see what is the clinical data and does it, does it pertain to, to my practice? And I think at the end of the day, that that's the feather in the cap. You know, all the proof of concept data is good, but you've got to have that clinical data. Perfect. Thank you. Well, you're you're a wealth of knowledge, and it's great listening to you and hearing you talk about this product, your product, but also just the PIV practice as as a whole. Do you have a, any other? words you want to pass on to us? Um, no, just, just, you know, in the, in the overall scope of thinking about, you know, uh, intravascular devices, you know, I, I think we have a tagline at Ethicon, we say, you know, protect all lines. Um, I think that, you know, there's a lot of technology that's been developed over time and utilized very successfully in protecting central lines. 
And I think that, um, you know, we do have, uh, as a clinical community, a lot of things to choose from in designing a bundle like, like Shelly DeVries did, you know, to protect our um, peripheral lines as well. Very good. I can't thank you enough for your time. I appreciate it. No, it's been a pleasure. Yes, thank you, Dr. Irvington. That was amazing. Okay. Thanks, Dr. O. Thanks. You're very welcome. And welcome to the Beyond the Manuscript segment of this episode of the I Save That podcast. I'm Eric Seger, a JAVA Editor-in-Chief, and I have the pleasure of being joined by Chuck Ramirez, who is the Director of Cardiopulmonary Services at Banner Estrella Medical Center in Phoenix, Arizona. And he's going to chat with me a little bit about his article titled Hemodialysis, a Catheter Insertion Without a Chest X-Ray, a Review of a 24-Month Study. Um, so, Chuck, how are you doing this morning? Thanks for joining us. Good morning. I'm do- I'm doing fine. Yeah, happy to have you here. Uh, now, as I understand, the, you know, the sort of the premise of your study uh, was hemodialysis, catheter insertion, and you guys used a dual vector positioning system, but you did not have a post chest X ray for validation. Um, as I understand, you and your team have been using this technique for a few years now. Correct? Yes. Yeah. We're 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 at about three years now. And what was sort of the idea to? to do this and to come up with uh, to perform this specific study and to record this data. Uh, so we've been using, we've been inserting uh, uh, pick lines obviously for, for, for decades and we were, we were doing a central line insertion since about 2007. Um, so early on we got, we started using the, uh, a, a tip locating device for our pick lines. And uh, we went through the process that everybody else did, did some validation. And over the years, that has just become the standard in, in pick placement where uh, we, we just don't take x-rays anymore. Uh, success rates are really well. Uh, positioning is good. Um, and all the issues that were around uh, pick placement and, uh, and not taking an x-ray kind of all went away because it was highly successful. Yeah, So and so fast forward uh, several years, so now we've had you know, uh, uh, a lot of years placing uh, central lines of various types. And, and uh, we, we primarily do the, the, uh, the IJ insertions, internal jugular. We, we can, uh, uh, we do have the ability to do subclavians, but uh, we only have a couple of people that are checked off on it. And uh, there's just such a high risk with it uh, mm-hmm. of uh, chemical complications that almost everybody, even though we have a few people that were validated, very, very frequently used. So from the IJ perspective, uh, we just did not have very many complications. I mean, we just didn't have any complications. Uh, once in a while, you know, we had trouble um, uh, placing a catheter, wouldn't draw blood, we'd take an x-ray, it was just a positioning issue. But we, we never had any pneumothoraxes or any hemothoraxes, which is the main complication associated with uh, central line placement. So. Uh, so after many years of the pick placement going well and really no complications associated with central lines, we went to our uh, medical team, uh, ICU medical team, and said, you know, why don't we start placing these with uh, um, a, a tip locating system and not do this x-ray? We're taking x-rays routinely, uh, and they don't, uh, they never come back with any problems, and there's a lot of issues with correct placement with uh, x-ray. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because one uh, radiologist to another will interpret 
the uh, the tip location uh, differently. You know, for the most part, the radiologist is pretty concerned as long as they're in the SBC, doesn't have to be in the distal end. Uh, as long as it's in the SBC, they call it good. And um, uh, so, optimal placement may not be there 100% of the time. Right. So after that discussion, we put together this process and uh, uh, you know had a couple team meetings about it. Uh, and that's kind of how we got started, uh, just because it didn't seem like it was necessary and we could probably get better placement. And then the other issue was, because uh, we insert uh, double lumen, triple lumen uh, central lines as well. So the other issue was, we do we go to all catheters or do we just focus on one particular catheter and limit the, uh, the variables? So that that was the other decision. Hemodialysis catheters are are very positional. You know, the, really you want them to be tipped into the atrium a little bit, and um, so t uh, tip location is uh, at a higher premium. So we thought maybe the dialysis catheter would be the the catheter that we would that we would uh, focus on. So that that's kind of how we got started, and that's why we picked that catheter because we wanted optimal tip positioning um, of the dialysis catheter. Well, did you run into any you know, once you got your study going up, did you run into any issues? Or I, I think I read in your manuscript, you, you had one instance of CLABSI uh, to a hemodialysis catheter, correct? Yes, yeah. So we, did, we out of all the catheters that we inserted, uh, I think there was 448 catheters during that period of time. We only had four catheters that could not get placed correctly. Uh, two of them just wore, we ended up getting x-rays. Two of them were just in the innominate vein and had to be advanced forward. And then, mm -hmm. and then two of them we couldn't figure out where they were at. Uh, they appeared to be in some kind of a false track, maybe. They weren't arterial, uh, but they weren't in the right place either. So we ended up just pulling those catheters. There was no subsequent um, uh, issues with chest tubes or anything like that. We just put in a new catheter and everything was good. Um, so those are the only complications. We had one clapsy um, during that period of time on a dialysis catheter. We had some other clapsies, but, but uh, we're on the dialysis group, uh, only one catheter in two years. Uh, so that was pretty good. Yeah, that's so excellent. Those, those, yeah, so those kind of compl the complications were actually very, very low. Probably the bigger issue was getting, um, we have about 12 people that insert 24-7. And the bigger issue was probably getting everybody moving forward, you know, so, uh, and getting validated. Because, you, you know, you start off with getting one person validated or two people validated. And so it took time to get uh, all 12 people validated. Um, sure. So it was a little slow to ramp up. But once we, we got everybody validated, uh, the uh, the taking of x-rays just dramatically dropped off. And is this sort of something that you've heard from maybe your colleagues at other hospitals across the country that they're considering doing as well? I mean, have you shared this information with them? So I, I was at AVA, uh, not last year, but uh, two years ago, uh, when they were in Phoenix here, actually. And and I gave a, a, a like a, a lunch and learn thing, and, uh, and mm -hmm. we talked about inserting central lines with a, a tip locating device. And uh, and the success that we were having, so I have had I've had had some discussions, but part of the issue is I talked to people doing vascular access. Is there's there's um, the number of of uh, non physicians inserting actual central lines is few, uh, and so I, I have had you know some interest, but uh, uh, most teams are are just casually interested because they're primarily focused on uh, you know pick lines, peripheral IVs, things like that. Sure. I'm hoping this will expand, but you know. Yeah. Well, is that kind of your, your wish or your hope for, for those that read your manuscript that comes out um, in the December issue of Java, you know, 
to kind of take away from your study to to spread this idea and as far as continuing practice elsewhere uh, absolutely that's the whole that's the whole uh, whole purpose you know I think we have to like question you know the norms that have been out in place for for decades you know the, and that's just the, the gold standard right is to take an x-ray following a central line insertion but we, we insert very differently than a lot of the mechanical complication data comes from uh, mm-hmm. you know everybody's using ultrasound we hardly do any subclavians anymore because they're just higher risk the the uh, so the complications are extremely low even when even when physicians were inserting you know ninety nine percent of the catheter you know, if you look at the number of pneumothoraxes and hemothoraxes the numbers are like one percent they they were they've always been historically pretty low compared to the total That's number true. that get inserted so so now that we have ultrasound we have better guidance tip locating devices uh, it's just a different it's a different time and it's time to move on to uh, you know, trust the technology. Sort of a new era, a new era. A new era, yeah. And so, uh, and, and, and plus, it, there's a big time element involved here. So, you know, you can, with the, using a tip locating device, you can insert a central line and, uh, you know, when you leave the bedside, they can start using it, which is, you know, really important some, in, in some cases. So in the dialysis case, it's probably not as important to, to use it immediately. Uh, but we have since, uh, so the paper is focusing on the dialysis catheter, but we have subsequently moved on to the central lines as well. Uh, now we're putting them all under, under uh, with a tip locating device. Time, time is, is of essence, you know. So, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so we don't wait for x-rays. We're, we know right there it's good to go, and, and uh, you can give fluids, what, you know, what, you know, pressors, whatever. We're, we're ready to go immediately at the bedside. But you can eliminate, so you're not only eliminating the x-ray, but you're eliminating the interpretation. Depending on where you're at, some of these, uh, some of these interpretations are done by a central hub. And so you're like in a rotation. And if somebody is busier, it, it could take a long time to get interpretation back. So depending on your patient, you know, that, uh, that whole process can, will stop therapy from being given for, can be quite a while. So we have we have eliminated that that whole issue there. Um, so that yeah, that's just where we need to go. And I'm hoping that's what people take away from this. For sure, and I, I think you guys have you and your team have provided some excellent data. So for everyone listening to this podcast, uh, check out Chuck and his team's article coming up on um, hemodialysis catheter insertion without the chest X-ray, a review of a 24-month study. Um, and Chuck, I wanted to thank you again for joining me today on the podcast. My pleasure. Hey everyone, in addition to the free webinar from APIC happening this Thursday, October 25th at 1 p.m. Eastern that Judy mentioned earlier on the podcast, there are a host of AVA Network events on tap for the next few weeks. First, WISVAN is hosting a joint meeting with the Wisconsin Infusion Nursing Chapter on Thursday in Brookfield, Wisconsin, where Jill Nolte will lead a discussion on bridging the gap between infusion and devices. CDAN follows with an all-day network education event this Friday in Fresno, where attendees can earn six continuing education credits. Registration begins at 7 a.m., and breakfast, lunch, and other prizes will be provided, along with the six great presentations from a series of vascular access key opinion leaders. DMV Van will host its second of a two-part series this Sunday in Alexandria, Virginia. This meeting serves as a follow-up to the Ultimate Challenge Part 1, Vascular Access for the IV Drug Abuser. David Hirsch will review case and risk management considerations in the outpatient setting. And when the calendar flips to November, Indivan and Sojan kick off the new month with their own respective meetings on next Thursday, the 1st. 
An Indianapolis Indy van welcomes Dr. P2 Devgon for a review on the approaches to blood draw, while Sojan hosts Tim Spencer for a discussion on catheter-to-vessel ratio in Sicklerville, New Jersey. For more information on these meetings, how to register, and all things AVA Networks, please visit www.avainfo.org networks. You can see the entire AVA Network calendar on the AVA website at www.avainfo.org, which is also where you can join AVA or donate to the AVA Foundation. AVA is all over social media. You can follow the Association for Vascular Access on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest. Make sure you're subscribed to the I Save That podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. We'd like to again thank Biopatch for sponsoring this episode of the I Save That podcast. Thank you to guests Dr. Lisa Ovington and Chuck Ramirez. If you'd like to hear our full interview with Dr. Ovington, please visit avainfo.org slash podcast. Thanks to Dabney Coleman, and happy Halloween, everybody. The information discussed on the I Save That podcast is solely for informational purposes. You should personally seek the guidance of clinicians before making any decisions that affect your health or the health of your patients. Listeners of this podcast are advised to do their own due diligence when it comes to making vascular access decisions. Our goal is to inform and entertain the healthcare landscape while giving you a starting point for your discussions with your own clinicians and professional advisors. By listening to this podcast, you agree that the hosts, our guests, our sponsors, and the Association for Vascular Access are not responsible for the success or failure of your health, your career, or any decision you make related to any of the information that we have presented. The I Save That podcast contains segments of copyrighted music that was not specifically authorized to be used, but is protected by federal law and the fair use doctrine as cited in Section 107 of the U.S. Copyright Act. If you have any specific concerns about this video or our position on fair use defense, please contact us at podcast at avainfo.org. No part of this broadcast shall be reproduced, transmitted, or sold in whole or in part or in any form without prior written consent of the Association for Vascular Access.